Welcome back to the podcast. It is the end of the year, year three of Power Hour. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening each week and for supporting the show. Even after three years, the mission remains the same. I want to encourage, to motivate. I want people to pursue their personal goals, their professional goals. And when they listen to the conversations each week, of course, I want the listeners to feel uplifted and motivated, but most importantly, to feel empowered to take action, to learn things from this show and to take them into your daily life. I think we've all needed a little bit of inspiration and motivation this year. So let's take a look back and dive into some of my favorite best bits of 2021. I'd love to talk to you, Mel, about your new book, High Five Habit. So I was lucky enough to read an early copy. And one thing that you talk about right at the start of the book that really stood out for me was when you talked about the the focus on self. So you talk about self-worth, self-esteem, self-love, and the fact that these all start with the self and almost this idea that we have to take responsibility for ourselves. I know that, you know, with a lot of the work that I do and the people I speak to, they almost, they want other people to, you know, encourage them, other people to give them advice, other people to give them support, other people to give them validation and approval. And this person will know what's best for me. And maybe I should get advice from here. Or what about my 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 parents might think or my boss or my friend and sometimes that idea that actually maybe you know what's best for you and that idea of self I really really liked so why do you think it's so important that actually we start to take responsibility we turn and look at ourselves and if that's a really new thing for someone listening how can they start to practice that okay so it's a great question you're absolutely right all those things that we seek in life self-confidence self-worth self-awareness self-validate, like all of it, the word self is in it. And I think one of the reasons why so many of us feel insecure and we struggle with people pleasing and we're constantly feeling anxious about how we fit in or what we should say or whether or not we should send the text or what it means if they left us unread or what, what, like all of it. So much of it is because you have a habit of looking outside of yourself for your own worth and for encouragement and for validation. That if you have enough likes, that means you're okay. If the number on the scale is a certain number, that means you're worthy. That if you have a certain amount of money or you drive a certain car, you're in a certain kind of relationship, that all these things outside of you define your self-worth. That's why we are all insecure, we are anxious, we are people pleasers, And we have given our power away. And what I'm here to prove to you is that you will never be fulfilled to the level that you deserve. You will never reach the dreams that you were born with, encoded in your DNA. You will never experience the contentment and the joy that you are hardwired to feel until you can stand in front of a mirror and look yourself in the eye and see a human being that is worthy of celebration, empowerment, encouragement, and joy right here, right now, no matter what's happened in your life, no matter where you are, when you can stand in front of a mirror and see a human being that is worthy of that, you will know the secret 
to everything. It begins with you. And look, I'm, you know, 52 years old. I didn't discover this until literally a year ago. So let me tell you the quick story about the five, the high five habit. So like everybody, the pandemic kicked my ass and I found myself in a situation where I had been hosting a daytime talk show. It was my dream job. And they find COVID at CBS Broadcast Center in New York City, and they cancel my show with five minutes notice. We evacuate the building. I don't get a chance to say goodbye to the 130 people I'd spent a year working with. On top of that, the truth is I had just been fired from my dream job. As I'm driving um, back to Boston and seeing New York City disappear in the skyline, I'm thinking, what the hell just happened? This was in March of, of... uh, 20, I get, like at this point, it's all such a blur. It's unbelievable of 2020. I get home all of a sudden speech after speech, after speech, after speech starts to cancel. Then my book contract cancels and the publisher now wants me to return money I've already spent. So my business is now in a free fall and it starts to trigger me because a decade ago, my husband and I were a million dollars in debt. He had a restaurant business that was going under. I was unemployed. The financial financial crisis in our lives was so bad. There were liens on the house. We were facing bankruptcy. I could barely get out of bed. That's the moment in my life when I invented the five-second rule to help me get out of bed. So here I am now in 2020 thinking that I had figured life out. Now I'm in a free fall feeling like I'm trying to pack a parachute as I'm falling off a cliff. The kids come home because college is now imploded. They're in massive states of distress. I'm worried about my parents. I'm worried about the frontline workers. I'm worried about what's going on. I am just in a psychological drain circling where I am going down. And when you start to have a negative attitude, It's sort of like lint in a dryer. Once a little lint starts to capture in that filter in a dryer, it starts to build and it can take you down. And this is why I want to teach you a number of things. And we're going to start with the actual high five habit, which is a habit of encouraging and empowering and lifting yourself up when you feel yourself going down. So that very first morning, what happened was this, the alarm went off. I used the five second rule, five, four, three, two, one to get out of bed. Now, I always make my bed in the morning, and on good days, I make my bed because it's a way to practice simple discipline, to just do that quickly. It's also nice because when I come back into my bedroom, I don't have a mess to clean up. And the other thing is, is then I've got this beautiful place to go down and lay down and sleep and dream at night. But that morning, I made the bed so I wouldn't crawl back into it. Like, that's how I was feeling. So I walk into the the bathroom, I'm standing there in my underwear, I'm brushing my teeth, and I catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror. And I think, God, you look like hell. And the woman I saw in the mirror looked so tired and so overwhelmed, I felt sad for her. You know, her, her neck was all wrinkly and her eyes were tired and she had the dark kind of circles and bags and, you know, gray hair coming in. And, you know, one boob is hanging lower than the, the next one. And as soon as you start to critique yourself in the mirror, now your mind is going to think about your day. 
Oh, I got up late. I got a Zoom call starting in 10 minutes. I'm behind. I didn't I didn't text that person back. The dog is sitting there at my feet. I still have to walk and feed the dog. Like I'm now starting to go, you know, you always do this to yourself. Why can't you get up? Like just pounding myself into the ground. And I felt just overwhelmed by my life. And I don't know what came over me that morning because I'm one of the most successful motivational speakers in the world. But that particular morning, looking at my sad reflection, I didn't have a damn thing to say to myself. You know, if you had bumped into me, I would have been able to talk to you. I would have been able to cheer you up. But looking at myself, couldn't think of a thing to say. And for whatever reason, as corny and as cheesy as it sounds, I found myself raising my hand and high-fiving my reflection. And the second I did it, I felt something shift inside of me. And I can now explain the science in terms of physiologically and in your brain what's going on when you raise your hand and high-five your reflection because it's just bananas, the science on this. But I felt like a little shift in my mood. I felt my shoulders drop. I kind of chuckled at how stupid it was. And here's the thing, that high five that morning didn't change my life, but something shifted in me and I went on with my day. Now this second morning is when things got really weird. So I woke up the second morning, five, four, three, two, one, get out of bed, I make my bed. And as I started walking to the bathroom, I noticed something. I noticed that I was looking forward to seeing the woman in the mirror. And the way that I would describe it is right before you and I logged on, I felt this like surge of excitement because I was looking forward to seeing you and to talking to you. Now, I think for 45 years, I have either criticized or ignored myself when I look in the mirror. I don't ever remember looking forward to seeing myself. I might've looked forward to seeing an outfit I was wearing, or I might've looked forward to checking out what my makeup looked like, but I have never ever felt that feeling of I'm looking forward to seeing the person in the mirror. Like I'm greeting a friend. And uh, yeah, it was incredible. And so I kind of kept this little high five ritual. What I would do is I'd brush my teeth. I'd put my toothbrush down and it started to evolve where I would stand in front of the mirror. I'd put the toothbrush down and I would just be with myself. And I think, okay, what game do I want to play today? And I would think about like, how am I going to show up today? What's the thing that I really want to make progress on today? Like, what's the game I'm going to play? And then I would raise my hand and I'd look myself in the eye and I would seal that intention with a high five. And then after about two weeks of doing this, I was noticing something. I was no longer leaving the bathroom every morning feeling like I was dragging a boulder. I felt the wind at my back. I felt like I could handle it. I felt like, okay, this sucks but I got this, or I don't really want to have to deal with this, but I'm going in and I'm going to do it. And I started to notice that my confidence, my sense of resilience, my happiness, all of it 
was starting to just build and build and build and build. And one day I posted a photo of myself, you know, looking back, I wish it had been something kind of glamorous because this thing is now like gone around, but I got my retainer in and bedhead. It's, you know, and within an hour, more than a hundred people had high fived themselves in the mirror, posted a photo and tagged themselves online. And I thought, you know what? Maybe this thing isn't so stupid after all. Maybe I should figure out why this feels so good. And that's what I did. I've spent the last year researching the science behind not only this high five in the mirror, but all kinds of little habits you can use to create habits of empowering, celebrating, and supporting yourself. I'd love to know, you know, we've all had challenges in our lives. We've all had ebbs and flows. It's never just, you know, plain sailing, no matter who you are, no matter what you do. Now, I know you're very modest and humble and you haven't even touched on the number of incredible celebrities and A-list stars and the people that you've worked with in LA and, you know, all of that. But I'd love to hear from you, you know, have there been any challenges? I'm sure there's been many, but can you think of any examples of challenges that you've had to face and how have you overcome them? Well, I mean, you said it, you said it best yourself. Um, I train out in LA. I've worked with numerous different celebrities and people of that, of that caliber. But I mean, I'm in LA. I'm in the Mecca of superficial BS. I'm in the Mecca of people wanting to do everything the shortest, fastest, quickest way, but want to be seen and want to be held up as the the world's top trainer or the world's best this or the world's best that. So, I mean, I've taken a lot of losses. I've, I've lost clients. I've lost job opportunities. I've, I've, I've been, I've, I've held myself captive inside of my own mental space, but each and every time I come up on an obstacle or opposition or something that could break me, I just take a step back. I breathe. And I know that I was put here on this face of the planet to promote this message of positivity, of I can do it, of mental toughness. Like my purpose is to inspire. And the vessel that that, that God has given me to inspire people is through fitness. So mm-hmm. I'm going to take advantage of that. So like I touched on before, I, was a, I, I am an athlete. I, I played football my whole entire life, all through college. I had the dream of going to the NFL and I failed. I failed myself. And it's taken me, it's taken 10 years, 11 years, 12 years to really think about why I didn't make it into the NFL. And it's me. It was me. It was my focus. It was my, it was my, my ego driven it was my ego-driven personality that just wanted to be a professional athlete, not necessarily for the sport, but for the accolades, for the treatment, for the money, for the women. And it wasn't just for the sport. And I can take, I can take a step back. I can analyze everything I did on my quest to making it to the NFL after I graduated from college. And I only have myself to blame, but it's fine. I don't I don't punish myself for it anymore. I don't walk around with my head down anymore. I'm not insecure over that fact. That's something I will have to live with forever. I dropped the ball on my hoop dream. 
which is okay because I was able to pivot. I was able to I was able to dig deeper inside of myself and I was able to create a whole new identity. And when I say a whole new identity, when you've been an athlete your whole life, you're identified as that athlete. But when football was stripped away, I'm just now Mike, the regular guy. And my whole life since I was five years old, I've been Mike, the athlete. So it was really about taking a step back and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, who I wanted to be and how I was going to be able to get my message across. Wow. That's so powerful and so honest as well. And you know, and you said then, you know, I only had myself to blame. That gave me chills because I think deep down, we all know when something happens in life that, you know, when we know we're the reason and we think, you know what, Adrienne or or Michael, you know, whoever's listening, you're thinking, okay, you only have yourself to blame. That, That place, that real honest accepting that is hard to do. And then, you know, you went on to talk about identity and not allowing that to to consume you or to become your identity. You know, we know those people, I know those people, older people who they're almost a martyr to something in their life that happened, as you said, years and years and years ago, you can't go back. You can't go back and and change that story, but not allowing that to, yeah, to become your identity, to consume you. And so forevermore, that is your story. You know, I love the fact that you've said there's no shame. I don't carry shame about it. It's just, that's what it is. And you make that decision, you move on and you look forwards because, you know, you can't look back and look forwards at the same time. You have to choose. You can only do one. And I think, thank you for yes t- telling us that because it's incredibly honest to, to yeah. play it back that way. See, I feel I feel that people can learn so much from the pain of failure. And you like when people when you can really sit down with yourself in a room and you can just dive deep mentally and start doing the work and 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 overcoming the pain of failures and losses, when you can use that energy of the pain that you felt from that loss and then transfer that into the next thing that you're trying to do oh my god you have so much power and you have so much fuel because that pain that pain is real and it will never leave Mm. it will never leave like when it comes to whatever circumstance or whatever situation you are drawing from or thinking about that pain is still there have you worked through it have you overcame it yes but the initial pain of what it was that triggered you will always be there. And when you can use that pain as motivation and fuel for your success and your greatness, oh my God, like you can't be stopped. Mm-hmm. You can't be stopped. And and it's all about doing the work. Like things happen in lives, relationships fail, jobs end, friendships end. Use that pain for your next project. Use your knowledge for your next project, everything that you go through in life is teaching you something. You just have to be able to put it in the category of what it is trying to teach you. And so many people just try to block things out like, oh, that was too painful for me. I don't ever want to think about it again. Well, ma'am, when that situation comes back up again, which it will, wearing a different mask, how are you going to handle it? Because you didn't do the work 10 years ago to get over the first time. It's just going to keep slapping you in the face. Like an, an athlete. So I have a I have a boot camp company as well called Ultimate Athlete Bootcamp. And me and my business partner, our 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 definition of an athlete is somebody who's able to identify, assess, process, and overcome adversity. Once again, 
An athlete is a person who's able to identify, assess, and process adversity. It's not a matter of being reactive. It's a matter of being proactive because adversity is looming its face around the corner every time. And if you're not aware, if you can't identify it, it's going to slap you in the face every single time. But it's going to feel like a punch from Mike Tyson. And you're going to wonder why you keep getting knocked out. But all the signs are there if you just open your eyes and become aware. When you mentioned vision boards and and calling them action boards, I absolutely love that because I am someone who's all about action. And just like you said, Mm. it's not about, you know, wish for it, dream for it, close your eyes and just wait. And, you know, it's just going to fall into your lap because let's be honest, that is not, well, certainly not the world in the way that I've experienced it. And if you just, you know, write a list and a plan and a dream, that's great. I think you have to do that. But actually making those steps to making it actions, habits, behaviors, what what where should people start if someone's listening and thinking okay i've heard of vision boards before maybe they've even back in the day you know cut out some pictures or or change their screensaver or they've written a list mm. of how much money they want to earn where they want to live you know the kind of life they want to have but they feel like it's so out of reach they feel like it's just a dream almost or like a you know a, a wish how can they start to make those vision boards action boards Yeah, so I I do think it's a work in progress because I've been doing it, I think, for 12 or 13 years now. And it it certainly started out smaller. When you practice visualization and manifestation as a way of life, I have to say, Adrian, that sometimes incredible things do just seem to fall out of the sky. But that's on the back of 12 years of Mm. creating these boards and making the things on them happen. So, you know, when I first started out, I was actually um, working with a friend who was a coach on, on my um, action board. And she said to me, how much money do you want to earn next year? This was the first year of, of setting up my business. And so I named the amount that I needed to, you know, to pay the bills and, you know, sort of, have, you know, not worry about money, basically. And she said, oh, I think you should put double that on your vision board. And I thought that that was ridiculous and unachievable, but I thought, you know, why not put a bigger goal up there? Then maybe I'll earn more than what I, you know, more than 50% of it. Hmm. In a year, I had earned the number that I put on that board. And for the first three years of my business, I doubled the number each year. And and that actually came true. Hmm. But you can imagine like going from being an NHS doctor to starting up an executive coaching business how much networking and hard work I had to do to make that happen. So, Mm. you know, it certainly didn't fall out of the sky, but there was definitely a motivation from from seeing that number Mm. um, and knowing that I'd achieved it once and, and that I could do it again. Later, I just put imagery that represented abundance. So I guess that was the turning point where my board started to become more metaphorical than literal. Mm. So one year, for example, the year that I made my business a limited company, all I had was an image of a horse kicking up some water because to me, the horse represented loyalty and stability and like a team and the kicking up water was causing some sort of disruption. And that was the year that I started using heart rate variability technology and coaching, which, you know, hadn't really been done before. Mm. Um, I like sort of spotting, you know, trends in technology and trying to use them in my work. So what I would say to people is take some time to have an idea of what you really want. 
And it does have to be realistic, but it can be big picture. So, you know, it can't just be like a super yacht and a private jet, but it can be, a, you know, a nicer home or a partner or a pregnancy or starting up your own business or travel. Um, you can even do it in sections like that. Mm. Look out for images that appeal to you that represent these sorts of things. And then set aside some time to actually go through magazines and just find images or perhaps a few quotes, although I don't like too much writing on them, that just really speak to you, but don't necessarily relate to something that you know that you want. Because we mustn't be limited by only what we know. We have to be open to a bit a bit of magic as well. So I also leave space on my board because, well, practically I don't want my life to be cluttered and too busy, but also I leave I leave, you know, space for that magic to happen for something that I couldn't have um, imagined to perhaps mm. come into my life. So then you would place the images on your piece of paper or cardboard or pin board, whatever. And even if there were things on there that you definitely thought you wanted, if the imagery feels wrong, you have to remove it. Um, if, Like I said, if there are images that you just like, but you don't know why, but they feel right, then keep them on there. I always leave it overnight or for a weekend in a sort of pet-proof, child-proof, wind-proof area and, you know, maybe move them around a bit and just see what should be connected to other images and what needs to be kind of on its own. And then really challenge yourself, is everything I want on this board? Is there anything that's not on there that, that should be on there? Is there something on there that actually I feel like shouldn't be on there? So get it right and then glue it down. Um, keep it somewhere really visible so that you see it at least twice a day. So bedrooms are really good place. Um, and there's a special sort of subliminal effect of what you see last thing at night. So, you know, that's another doubly good reason to have it there. But, you know, when I lived on my own in my flat, I used to have it up on the wall in my bathroom. And so if anybody came to visit me and went to the loo, they they would see it. So, you know, I sort of wasn't ashamed of anything that was on mm. it. I Even when it had like the number of how much money I wanted to earn and stuff. And I do think that that holds you a bit accountable as well, because people know what you're working on and, and they can mm. help you or ask you like, you know, how's it going? These days you can do the board digitally on Pinterest or Corculus and keep it as your screensaver, like you mentioned. And so it's having, it's creating the board in the first place, um, which equates, on, you know, to some level of feeling that you deserve it, which is really important. Mm. Um, looking at it regularly and visualizing the things on it becoming true. Those are the sort of three really important steps. Yes. Oh, wow. So many things then you were saying. The first one I want to pin back to was when you said realistic. So I really challenge, you know, what people believe to be possible for themselves and for their lives determines essentially what realistic even means. And, you know, if you said, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I want to be uh, an Olympic gold medalist in the marathon, or I want to be an astronaut and someone says to you, oh, it's not realistic, then yeah, potentially there's, there's a real you know, fact as to why it's not. But often, but when you said about doubling your income, I knew Mm. before you continued to tell us that you then uh, uh, earned that money, I knew that that would be the case. Because maybe maybe it's my mindset. Maybe it's because I've developed a growth mindset. Maybe it's, Mm -hmm. it's because I... Yeah, I don't limit my ambition. And I always say to people when I, you know, at one point in in my book, I say, what if your biggest goal is 10 times too small? And, you know, when your friend Mm. said to you, the coach said to you, double it, you then because the number was bigger and as you said you kind of went oh maybe I'll maybe I'll 
earn 50% more. Or I think that's what I really encourage people to do is they limit their own belief of what they think is possible with this word realistic. You know, oh, I'd love to do that, Adrienne, but oh, I can't Mm. because I've got kids or oh, I can't do that because of X, Y, and Z. And oh, I could never. And they kind of give me a long list of reasons that they must limit their ambition. And when I challenge people to say double this, you know, that was actually, it's funny. I felt like I could have been that coach because I am literally all my Mm. friends. I'm like, double it. It's what you deserve. Double that. (laughs) It's what you deserve. And we say, we laugh about it, but we mean it. You know, it's like, whether it's it's the size of the glass of wine or it's the size of your invoice, (laughs) double it. It is what you deserve. So I really feel like if people could understand that the first thing is actually, yeah, accepting that this is possible for you. This is realistic. This is something that even if it feels, you know, like a huge leap from where you are today, it is possible. And really understanding that so that when you look at that board, so that when you put those pictures or those words, if you don't believe, do you know what I mean? What's the, what's the, you know, mentioned about neuroscience, what's the science that's actually happening there that me- that makes it so that when you see something like that, uh, in a previous episode, I interviewed Tom Daly and he actually, whether he knew it was visualization, whether he knew it was an action board or not, he said that he had a book, like a diary, and he, he drew on a picture of the, the Olympic mm. medal that he wanted for 2012. And he put 2012, the Olympic rings, the medal. And he'd been looking at that since he was 13 years old. So mm. when he got up on the diving board, you know, to do, to do that, that dive to, to win that medal, he had that image in the front of his mind. And I think that was such a powerful, you know, these visuals are so powerful. So yeah, what is the, real science there that's making those those dreams a reality so first of all that tom daly story i do know it but it, i literally got goosebumps when you said it again um and secondly everyone needs a best friend like you um <laughs> <laughs> so i you know what really came to my mind as you were speaking about your friends and people that you you know you encourage in that way is that that Marianne Williamson quote, which says, your greatest fear isn't that you'll fail, your greatest fear is that you'll succeed beyond your wildest imagination. Mm. And sadly, there's this negative gearing in the brain that's a protective mechanism through evolution that works to bring up negative memories to stop us from taking risks. So basically, when you, let's say you're going to take a risk after a painful breakup of dating again, Your brain, the amygdala, where the emotions come from, and the hippocampus, where memories are embedded, they get together and say, let's remind Adrienne of every bad date she's ever had. Let's remind Adrienne of every painful breakup she's ever had. Because if she goes out there and does this again, she could have her heart broken, and and we want to protect her from that. But the thing is, if you listen to that voice, you'd never do anything. Hmm. So that mechanism protected us from physical predators when we were in the cave. In the modern world, that mechanism, to some extent, we, do, you know, we still need it. But in things like our life, our health, our relationships, our wealth, we need to be able to override that natural default mechanism. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned the word abundance and you're the embodiment of abundance. But that's what we need to cultivate in our brains that, you know, I do deserve this. I, I could make that happen. Um, and I just want to come back and qualify what you were saying about realistic. I think there's two sides to the coin there. And it's in the word, it's really in the word real, which is where in the book I've written about magnetic desire is a really strong emotion and motivation to achieve these things. Hmm. And that's why it can't be what she's got or the house he lives in or, you know, what everybody thinks they should have. It must be 
from your brain, your heart and your gut what you want for your life. Wow, it's very powerful hearing you describe, you know, that need for what we know and our fear of unknown whilst simultaneously craving change, but that actually we won't implement change until we absolutely have to. Like that is fascinating to me. And for anyone who's who's not already heard about the uncertainty experts, Sam, you've written and directed uh, a live interactive and immersive documentary. And you touched on, you know, the, the, the research that's gone into this from, from UCL. So could you, yeah, tell us a little bit, I guess, about how that, that came to, to be? And was there anything that really stood out and shocked you about that research whilst you were writing and directing this, this documentary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, I'll, start, I'll start with a bit of um, the research that I've seen and then I'll go back to the beginning of, of, of how it came to be because I think you'll like this. And we've only just kind of seen it in the, in the most up-to-date analysis of the data. So it hasn't been shared anywhere else. Um, in the, through the process of uncertainty experts, um, the audience gets asked a series of questions. And in, in one of the early episodes, uh, the question is asked of people, what is their greatest fear? And that's not because we're just trying to put people on the spot or make anyone feel uncomfortable. But if you as a human being are aware of what your greatest fear is, it gives you strength, not weakness. And I know that sounds counterintuitive because if you call to mind your greatest fear, and I mean, do it, let's do it now. If we say what's our greatest fear, and I don't mean like the obvious, like something bad happening to our kids or, or, or running out of money or, you know, those are, those are genuine fears. Yes, of course. But um, that's our, our short term instincts like our actual greatest fear, the slippery thing that even when you kind of pull it to mind, it's kind of hard to hang on to because it's so uncomfortable to us. Um, and the reason for asking people this question is if you, if you, if you navigate more towards that, if you call it to mind more, if you, if you have a relationship with it and you're familiar with it, you'll be less triggered when short-term fears or, or small problems in your life happen because they're always hitting on that cord, that, that nerve ending that you've got. And the closer... Uh, threats or volatility in the world is to your darkest fear, the more vulnerable you will be to it. So the more you shine a light on it, you're never going to overcome it completely, but you can change your relationship with fear. And about 86% of the audience, of so the vast, vast majority came back and said their greatest fear is failure. That's what they, you know, mm. that's it. That's the thing you don't, that's the thing you don't want. And I get that. Of course we get that. We all get that. Look at any situation. And there's, there's real um, scientific evidence behind that because a long, long while ago, um, survival was based on social groups. And the last thing you want to be is a failure because you, you risk being pushed out of the social group. So your, your survival is actually at risk because of failure, or it certainly once was. Now, later in, the later in the series, a different question is asked, and this question is posed by uh, John Peters, who was a prisoner of war in the first uh, Iraq conflict. He was tortured and he was nearly executed, and he, he tells the story of this, this position of real uncertainty and how in that moment he was hit by this kind of this one word, this one word which was how he wanted to live his life, and, and, and he did obviously live his life and succeeded, but he's held this word with him everywhere he's gone, and it's helped him avoid regrets. And so he asks a question to the audience, you know, what is, if you, if you can work out now whilst you're still in the middle of your life and enjoying your life, what is it that you least want to regret? Like you don't want to, don't want to end up when it's too late to do something about it, knowing what this regret is. And so, you know, we asked that of the room and about 90%. So even greater majority said the one thing they least want to regret later in life is missed opportunity. Now, if you go back to that earlier statistic, mm -hmm. what's the one thing most likely to lead to missed opportunity? Well, it's fear of failure, of course. 
And so these two things suddenly sit together. So if our greatest fear for understandable reasons is failing, but if we can project ourselves into our very own futures and the last thing we want to do is look back and regret missed opportunity, well, if you can hold those two thoughts in mind, or even if you can hold those two states in mind, one of your future self and one of your present self, well, the regret is going to be much greater, uh, a far more motivating thing to consider than the short-term fear you might have. And by holding on to that, that, that desire not to have that future regret, you might just find you're more able to navigate your way through the immediate fear of failure. And I just found that a really interesting insight and, and, and you know, duality to hold together. And, and hopefully that's a useful thing for people who are experiencing some fear. Oh, it's super interesting. And before, just before you go on to tell us about, you know, how, how you came to get to yeah. doing the uncertainty experts in the first place, as you were talking, I was sitting here, you know, nodding along with a smile on my face because I'm in my office at the moment. I'm in my home office. We're recording remotely. And on the wall next to me, I have a printout that my sister printed and framed for me. It's my own words, which is kind of like, you know, just to remind myself, really. Um, it's my own words. It's, it's actually from my book. And it says, inaction is the greatest risk of all and the reason I have that there is because you know when you were talking about you know what people's greatest fear is and you know many people it being failure I suppose mine isn't you know a million miles away from that but when I've thought about this question before I often think you know what would you fear oh yeah what's your your fear in mine is actually complacency I fear complacency I'm always you know not to get too deep on it, but I'm always, you know, challenging myself to to remain in this, I, you know, this striving and doing because I fear complacency. And actually, I guess that is quite linked to failure. But that idea of missed opportunity and that so many people, for whatever reason, if they've had, unfortunately, I feel like people wait until something terrible happens. You know, they get a cancer diagnosis or somewhere they lose somebody, and then they then they say, right, I'm going to change my life. I'm, you know, life's too short. I don't want to have regrets. I don't want to have missed opportunity. And so with so much of the work that I do, I'm often trying to say to people, don't wait. You know, even the concept of time and the power hour, don't wait for something to change your whole life or to kind of be a catalyst for change. You don't need to wait for a catalyst. You know, it's really important that you think about, yeah, not having missed opportunities in your life and build your life in a way that is, of course, like I say, fear of failure is it's in all of us. But what's for me, like I say, the greatest risk of all is inaction. Because for me, it comes down to, again, risk. And I'd, I'd love to maybe just ask you a little bit about that and how you, how does risk kind of play into that? Because that's what unknown is, isn't it? It's thinking, well, maybe I'll get everything I want or maybe it'll go really well. Oh, but maybe it won't. And maybe I'll yeah have this public failure and then what do I do? So how do we start to think about risk when we're evaluating fear and, and opportunity? So... The, the work kind of centers around the idea of uncertainty um, because I think that it's an opportunity to get our hands on the real challenge of the day. And I'm going to come back to why this is, is, is a strategy for risk um, because there's a lot of people walking around at the moment who think, well, uncertainty is not really my problem. My problem is my anxiety levels or the sleeplessness I'm facing or my worry about work or um, the impact of all this on my health, you know. And, and it's true, those are all real, real challenges real people are facing every day. But they're all connected, and they're all connected by something, and they're all connected by uncertainty. Uncertainty is the underlying or the meta challenge, you know, the challenge that sits above the other challenges. Uh, some recent research from University of Tokyo in coordination with international universities shows clearly that uncertainty is the number one driver of anxiety disorder globally, bar none. And 
uncertainty is what sits behind economic um, upheaval. Uncertainty is what sits behind community cohesion. Communities with a low tolerance to uncertainty, it's proven, are more likely to fall for populist policies or conspiracy theories, more likely to have conflict and division, whereas societies with greater tolerance for uncertainty, because you're able to sit in in discomfort and, and hold on to ambiguity. So where this comes back to risk is I think it's an alternative method so risk is different from uh, uncertainty because risk is often about probabilities. How likely is this thing going to be that is going to happen to you? And so it's a useful tool to assess when uh, you may be safe to make a choice. You know, when is it safe to cross this road? And there's a my favourite risk assessment is very simple, um, uh, and it was from Colin Powell, the probably the most successful. Um, actually most successful politician I don't know why I was going to call race into it but just most successful American politician bar none regardless of his background because he served for successive presidents across three successive presidents across two different political parties and no one has held that position um, and he used to say the safe safe risk zone is between 30 and 70 percent if you know less than 30 percent of the information around something then it's too risky and you shouldn't do it if you've only got 20% of the information you need to know, then you can't make a decision, you can't go. Um, however, if you've got more than 70% of the information, if you're one of those people that waits until you know absolutely everything, then you're going to miss the chance and you're not in an innovative space. You're not going to make something new happen. So as long as you've got between 30 and 70% of the information you need, then it's time to take a risk. And I, I just love that as a window. Uh, you know, it gives me a lot of reassurance when I think, fuck me, I don't really know much about this, but maybe I know <laughs> half of what I need to know. I can, I can take a risk. Now, the big difference is uncertainty. So the world is really uncertain. The World Uncertainty Index says it's the most uncertain time human beings have ever lived. And, and that causes all these horrible problems that we feel in our gut, in our butterflies in our stomach, the racing of our hearts. And there is a method for overcoming it because it's also true that throughout humanity, periods of uncertainty are what leads us to our greatest opportunities for innovation. Like Most of the great inventions of, of, of human beings have come when we needed the most, when our backs are against the wall, when life's knocked us to our knees once again, it's when we bring it. And that's where resilience comes from. So there is something to be, it's, it's like Nietzsche's old line, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, right? we, we all know that's like axiomatically true retrospectively in our lives. So therefore, isn't it also true looking forward? Could you not begin to consider that all of the uncertainty risks and challenges we face are all a trip to the gym mentally and emotionally, and we will come out all of them stronger if we're intentional about them and recognize them for the lessons they are. And in that moment, we separate these two things out. So risk is a window of probability and uncertainty is a feeling, a skill, an emotion and a chance to get better at life by beginning to embrace it. You touched on already a little bit around saying, you know, the media and, um, you know, production and mm. even social media. And I think that's something I really want to talk to you about, because although Instagram has done a lot, I really think it's done a lot. Like it's certainly done a lot for me and I think for, for yourself. And I think it's given a voice and a place for a lot of people to share, to be heard, to be seen and actually think that it's you know yeah I think you know I certainly think back to when I was a child you know I didn't have I couldn't mm. find those things I couldn't seek it you know this whole thing of like look I couldn't even seek it so I think in that way I'm like great but the flip side is that I sometimes think it's created a sort of online echo chamber utopia where it appears like everyone's learning everyone's listening everyone's woke like we're resharing petitions we're doing swipe ups we're doing black squares and you know look isn't it great 
But how does that translate offline? So this sometimes performative activism, which can get high engagement and lots of likes, you know, is that enough? This virtual kudos, like, do you think, like, what do you think needs to happen really to ensure that this online comes offline? And what does that really look like? Do you know, um, I saw a friend the other day, she had some drinks in her garden and some really, in terms of like the media world, some really powerful people were there. None of them have social media accounts. The people that are in the positions to hire and fire and make these boardrooms diverse are not on social media. And so I'm trying my best because it's hard to even be like, don't do that. But I'm always like, you point one finger, three are pointing back at you because I indulge in this space as well. But like the minute we log off, we all have to check ourselves and be like, right. And now what movements are we making in the real world? Are we taking our children to school and investigating what material is being taught to them? What books are available in the library? Are we going to our workplace and trying to engage with um, our co-workers whom we know are different to us and that difference is going to mar their earning opportunity? And are we willing to stand with them in conversations around how much they're being paid? Are we willing to go and try and open up our friendship groups um, in real life and not just be like, oh, I'm friends with these black influencers or these Asian influencers online. That's enough. Are we willing to do that in our real life? Only then are we going to see real change, because I tell you what, in the last I wouldn't even say year, last six months, I've really had a wake up call to just how how loud this online echo chamber is and how different it is once you put your phone down. Like Mm -hmm. how my area is just a constant conservative stronghold, right? Like, so what, what, what am I doing in these spaces? How am I even as the black woman who is normally, um, the one on the lowest totem pole, I still feel like I have a responsibility to go out there in the real world and make a change. And that means a lot of the time, and you would know this all too well, um, people don't always get to know that because a lot of the work I'm trying to do, I'm either completely NDA'd up up to my bum, like I cannot speak about it, or um, I don't want to speak prematurely. So it's very like you get these DMs or these messages that are like, yeah, but what are you doing in there? And I'm like, I would love to show you, but I'm not at liberty to do that right now. But because I have this huge platform, I think everyone expects to see me bring that work back here. And they're just two separate things. And so that also Mm. means, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, we need to be really mighty careful about... um, picking on people because we don't see certain things on their social feeds. I know some Mm -hmm. people who absolutely have not put up a black square, or like I said, they're not even on social media, and the, the moves they are trying to make in the real world to ensure that people um who are black or people who are disadvantaged in any way are getting what they're due, you could not believe. But 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 Instagram isn't their first port of call in the morning. Like jumping online and saying, oh, this is what I'm doing. It's just not, it's just not been imprinted into their DNA. So we're in really muddy, muddy waters right mm. now. 
Yeah, because, you know, yeah, those people, I know those people too. And I think, yeah, there's definitely, you know, yeah, stop with this whole like, well, what are you saying about it? What are you doing about it? But the flip side is what bothers me more. The flip side is what bothers me more is the people with all the time to be, like I say, posting that black square, doing the most online. But that is all. That's where it stops. That's they don't, you know, their own lives are not impacted, are not changed. Mm. You know, they don't even, I, I don't, I doubt they've read a book, but they're, they're, <laughs> it's easy to press retweet. It's easy to mm. press retweet. And I think that's where my issue is. It's like, how do you, yeah, I don't know. I just think people taking those things offline and saying, you know what, in that real space, as you just said, in my workplace, with my children at the school mm. drop, in, I don't know, any interaction in my life in the NHS when I'm sitting in the waiting room my own biases everyone has biases of course we do but like actually understanding that it's not enough it's not enough to just engage online and you know like a few posts or share a few posts and kind of say you know look I'm woke I'm doing enough I think it's really difficult and I think as much as like I said Instagram has been or any social media you know I think it's given a voice it's given you know you can be seen you can be heard and people can look and listen and learn I just worry that you know in my my daily experiences whether it's in you know working with brands working with individuals working with photographers honestly during the last year there's been so many instances that have just literally like left me mouth my mouth open I'm just like did that person just say that to me and it's because as I said because it's like this I, I fall into it myself of thinking oh great you know we're so progressive everyone's learning and then you have those moments you're like oh no Mm. (laughs) nothing's happening nothing so yeah it's difficult very difficult and it's also um so there's currently and I I want this to age well but there's currently something that is uh, a really big important topic in the news right now and I don't go in my dms often I would encourage anyone with a large platform to get some help with that but I saw a message the other day where someone was was infuriated that I hadn't spoken about this topic yet And I just want us to leave room for people to say, I do not know enough. I am just not that educated. This issue is so nuanced that I couldn't possibly come on this platform and even dare to educate other people when I am in kindergarten, I am in nursery on on this current news topic, on these people's lived experience. So it's not, and this is, so I, I'm always mindful because people are like, oh yeah, Candice the activist. I'm like, absolutely not. Even if I am an activist, I'm doing that role part-time because most of the time I'm trying to educate myself because there is so much going on. There is so much inequality. There is so much um, pain and suffering and war. And I hate to use the term, but for ease, conflict, that I couldn't possibly speak on everything because I'm going to get it wrong. And with a platform like that, I have a responsibility to only speak when the education is top notch. Because I Mm. don't know who's going to take that information and be like, well, Candy said, so this must be correct. And that puts anyone with any kind of platform in a really sticky situation. And it's Mm. like... Again, we're caught between that rock and a hard place because when I talk about white people and white privilege, it's like, yeah, you could post that black square, but what do you really know? What are you really doing? So I even find myself trying to leave wiggle room for those um, white people where I haven't seen a black square or them not speaking about a certain topic because I'm like, 
um, maybe, just maybe offline you are doing the work. I know that's, that might be just me being kind and far too empathetic, but I do feel No, but I pressure. think we have to have... Yeah, and I think we have to have room for that. As you said, you know, having that, I think what you just described, you know, saying I'm, I am learning this. I'm not mm. going to come and hold the mic until I know what I am taught and what I'm preaching. And I think, you know, there has to be room for this nuance. There has to be room for people to make a mistake, for people to say, I'm willing and I'm here. I'm in this conversation. So please let me be open to also not shying away from, you know, this word of like debate or conflict Mm. you know it mustn't be conflict and actually saying to people you know what maybe we welcome thoughtful disagreement maybe we Mm. don't all share the same views the same bias but we want to hear lived experience and actually maybe I learned something maybe by saying something wrong I go I got it wrong like let's have a conversation around that let's not police and cancel people and actually that's the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is this, you know, this is, you know, this cancel culture thing. And I'm hearing this more and more and more. I'm hearing this that, you know, apparently right now we not just live in a time of cancel culture, but also apparently it's the death of free speech. So we're no longer allowed, you know, some people would say they're no longer allowed to say what they want to say because, oh, I'm not allowed to speak anymore. Or I, you know, I'm at the back of the line or as a, as a white male or as a whatever, I'm not allowed to talk. So therefore this death of free speech. And um, it's actually, it was around the incident, the TV incident with Piers Morgan, you know, when he walked off set live after and then, and then resigned. And it was kind of, he was kind of being painted as the victim of council culture. And I guess I'd just love to hear your perspective on this, Candice, in the sense that I believe we're no longer living in a time of the death of free speech. I believe we're living in a time where you can no longer speak without being held account to your words, especially if those words have a hugely negative impact on others. So yeah, when it comes to the cancel culture and uh, the death of free speech, what are your thoughts on that? I think the first thing is to all, uh, we all need to get clear on what is free speech and what is hate speech and what has been camouflaged as free speech but now those who are impacted it are saying no that's hurtful and that's hateful to me and it would be a man who embodies the privilege of say a Piers Morgan who would be the one saying oh absolutely you know this is just free speech but sweetheart you wouldn't know hate speech if it hit you because you're at the top of the leaderboard right there is no one in front of you saying oh get back down there white guy so you wouldn't know hate speech if it came at you like a number two bus there's that and I just think it's like um yeah it's too easy to just be like oh my god it's all cancel culture I can't have my say anymore it's about understanding there are times when you could just be quiet and learn And when people have got too used to holding the mic or not having to, as you were saying, be held accountable for the things that they're saying, it must feel like, do you know what, this is going to make me giggle, it must feel like being a black woman. It it, it, it must feel like being an Asian woman. It It must feel like... Um, what you want to say isn't valid and no one wants to hear from you and whilst I want to sit here and be like oh my god boohoo poor you join the club get to the back of this queue you know Mm -hmm. and this is the thing it's like we cannot have these platforms and feel like we can do and say anything and not be reprimanded I will say that the energy of um, repercussion for the in from the internet is really scary because 
I've seen some people fall victim to cancel culture where I'm like, gosh, if that was 10 years ago, I'd be out of here too, you know? Um, Mm. Are we leaving enough room for, yes, people to be reprimanded, but then also allowing them to come back into the ring and learn, grow and change if we feel like they're sincere in their understanding and their apology? I do think that exists. But again, based on privilege, there's more room for, for others. Uh, I've seen black women not be able to get their career back or not be able to storm off a show and then go and get picked up by another show because they are black women. Like that wiggle room for women that look like me, for a woman that looks like you, is so thin. The margin for error is so thin. It's like you're constantly holding your breath because it's like, I have mouths to feed too and I've got a lot I want to say, but I'm always going to second guess myself because I know that I can't just go and get another job. So it's like, Mm. there are, as ever, it's so nuanced, it's so layered. Do I think it's like cancel culture? I don't know, because so many of the people that feel they've been cancelled still live in Notting Hill or are still billionaires. (laughs) Do you know? (laughs) You're good. Yeah, you're good. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, I... I feel like the the, the ones that scream about can- the, the the detrimental effects of cancel culture the most are actually not that impacted by it. Thank you so much for listening. Next week we'll be back with part two of the best of 2021. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.